The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, this is my first time speaking at a Sunday at IMC. I've had the opportunity to do a number of Dharma talks on Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday, but Sunday is pretty special. And I'm honored. I really feel this is a special opportunity. And so in honor of the first of the Sundays that I'm doing a Dharma talk, I thought I would take on really the loftiest of all topics, (laughs) which (laughs) has famously been spoken of as being impossible to put words on, impossible to verbalize, And so I'm going to add a little spin to it. So the topic is Nibbana, the ineffable, the transcendent state that is beyond death and beyond birth and beyond words. And so what I'm going to do is speak today about what I'm calling everyday awakening or basic nibbana, or let's say ordinary nibbana. And so it's kind of, it's, uh, it's putting it in a different light. Nibbana is often spoke of in very hushed and special terms. And we all know from the 2,500-year-old tradition, the Pali Canon, Uh, Back in the old days, a lot of people experienced Nibbana. Uh, It's maybe less thought of now as being something that you experience. Certainly there's less talk of it. One of the writings that I've enjoyed very much that mentions people who have lived Nibbana and experienced Nibbana is Jack Kornfield's book, Uh, which he calls, interestingly enough, after the ecstasy, the laundry. And his work was to identify people that he had heard of and other people had heard of in the world who had, through whatever experience, being in a cave for 11 years or having meditated specially or having had transmission from someone else, whatever the source was that these people were thought of as really having been there and achieved uh, what you would call the highest state or the highest goal of practice, meditative practice. And so Jack's thought was, well, I'll go around the world and I'll meet these people and I'll get to know who they are, and I'll learn, you know, because after all, it is presented as kind of the highest form or the goal of practice. So after traveling around the world and meeting a number of these people that were famously known for their achievements, Jack's conclusion was that there really isn't a state that you would call nibbana or enlightenment. It's not a state as he sees it. It's not something that you 
get to and you stay there and it remains. But his thought was there is enlightened behavior. So it's not enlightenment, but enlightened behavior, and it's more of a verb than it is a noun. So I'd like to carry that theme forward a little bit. So Nibbana, Nirvana in the Sanskrit, is a state that we can achieve momentarily, possibly. In fact, my guess is, looking around the room, there's probably a good number of people who in their meditative practice have experienced a state that you would call transcendence or clarity or fully being fully awake. You've experienced this in your meditation, whether on a retreat or uh, momentarily. These things come to us. In our lives, we have these what Christians have called epiphanies, these moments where, for whatever reason, in our minds, there's a momentary or maybe longer than a momentary breakthrough where instead of being distracted by things of the world that are confusing or unsettling or that we're clinging to, that there's a breakthrough into a space where we can see without judgment. Uh, There's a teacher in the Zen tradition that calls people in this place businessless. He says, you know, our lives really are composed of a lot of business. There's business. We have to maintain our homes. We have to conduct our business, our livelihood. We have to raise our children. There's all these things that are business. But in the midst of that, there can be an awareness of being businessless. The famous place which is no place, where there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. So there's nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to be. So I'm using words to try to sketch out this wordless, ineffable place, Nibbana. So this whole talk is going to be kind of like taking a block of marble and chopping pieces away. And often, uh, as you read the Pali Canon, it's the same approach. It, uh, words that are attributed to the man we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, those words often are negative. It's Nibbana is not this, and it's not that, and it's not so forth. So sculpting is kind of an ancient practice to sculpt away, to create awareness of something by saying what it isn't.
So here's a modern writer talking about Nibbana, the mindful, the fully clear state. And the reason that I like this, it's Mary Oliver. She's one of my favorite poets. And the reason I like this is that she speaks about it in very ordinary, down-to-earth terms. And so it sort of builds on the Jack Cornfield idea after the ecstasy, the laundry. So Mary Oliver says, Mindful every day, I hear or see something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the drab, the daily presentations, Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world. The oceans shine. The prayers that are made out of grass. She says, nor am I talking about the exceptional the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the daily presentations. How can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? So how can we help but grow wise? It's kind of a negative sculpting way of approaching it. How can we help but grow wise with a practice as the 2,500-year-old teachings tell us, practice is everything. The Buddha is said to have put forth the idea that enlightenment or clear seeing or complete awakening is the practice. It's not the end of practice, although the practice has periods where it feels exceptional and where the samadhi, the concentration is really remarkable, where mental states or emotional states can seem very special and very rich and alive. So those are periodic things that come to us. I think it's uh, kind of a sign that whoever put the universe together knew that people were going to meditate, and they kind of put these little goodies in in the meditation process. So after practice, we do get these goodies.
But they aren't the end state. They aren't Namada. They're just some goodies to keep us going so that we keep doing the sitting that is hard when our knees ache, our back feels challenged, and we think, oh, there's other things we should be doing. Let's get on the to-do list and see if we can work down the to-do list today. So the Buddha said, practice is enlightenment. Nibbana is practice. Practice is the process of living our lives and every day awakening a little bit more or a lot more, whatever the day brings. One of the things that really excites me about what happened 2,500 years ago is that this teaching came into a world where things were pretty rigid, where the thought was that what you were born as was pretty much what you stayed. Whoever your father, and no one really cared about your mother. (laughs) It's like mothers are kind of like cattle in the yard. But whoever your father was, whatever his caste was and whatever his lot in life was, that, that's what yours was. And that would go on generation after generation. So that was kind of the general thinking at the time, 2,500 years ago, when this young man sat down to come to grips with the harder things in life, suffering and illness and old age and death. And what he realized was that our lives are the practice. Our lives are the path. And so he spent 40 years teaching that. And we, in in the tradition that we follow here, the Theravadan tradition, we have, a, I think, a pretty good idea of what he actually did teach. Even though it wasn't written down for roughly 300 years after he did the teaching, and even when it was written down, it was written on palm leaves, and palm leaves are notorious for decaying and falling apart after not a lot of years. So they had to be transcribed and passed and so forth. So these words that were documented maybe 300 years after they were spoken and then transcribed many times over and over and over again, these words had to live in the midst of a world where there were invasions and armies going in and out and burning things and, and libraries being attacked and so forth. And uh, it's a... A miracle, I guess you would say. It's quite remarkable that we do have words that are so rich, that are part of the Dharma. That we can pretty much say were from this particular insight that came from 2,500 years ago. Lots been added 
whatever country that these words were in, the country certainly would add its own thoughts and what has come to us in America, in the United States, of the Theravadan tradition, the, the way of the elders, we think of as being the most true and the most representative of what actually was taught and spoken 2,500, 2500 years ago. But we're adding our own thoughts and slants and interpretation. I was reading a Karen Armstrong, uh, a great historian who wrote a book that I'll just mention briefly. It's called The Buddha. She Historically, she's gone through the Pali Canon and, and put together a narrative of the life of the Buddha. And it's really, it reads a little bit like a novel. So it's sequential and things are very accessible. I really recommend it as a book. She was speaking about the area where Siddhartha Gautama lived. And she said to the north was the area that was the origin of the English language. And so the Buddha lived in the Ganges Valley and traveled in an area maybe 100 or 150 miles uh, large. Just to the north of that was the area where the Aryans lived and where the English language was begun. Now, isn't that an interesting idea that in northern India, if you went back centuries, you might be able to understand some of the language that was spoken by the natives. These movements, the, the exchanges that happened over time, I, I think is uh, one of the great stories of life how the Dharma has become sifted and, and adjusted and modified over the years by all of its passages and all of its contact. But we know some things very clearly. And one of the things I think we know so clearly and without equivocation is the truth of the wisdom that our lives are the practice and the practice is enlightenment. And in the spirit of Jack's thought, not enlightenment that as a permanent state, but enlightenment as an aspect of our approach to life that we can experience moment by moment. It's nearer than anything to us. As they say in the poetry, it's as close as hands and feet. As close as our hands and feet is this ability we have, whoever or however it got plant, planted in our consciousness, this ability we have to be clear, to clearly be awake to what's happening moment by moment. The other resource that uh, I'll just mention is this fabulous book. And I think there may be some on the free bookshelf outside also. 
It's called The Island, an Anthology of the Buddha's Teachings on Nibbana by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro. And it's a big, thick book. I mean, there's a lot of pages in there. All relating to this thought of Nibbana. The breakthrough that came 2,500 years ago so that we don't have to live in a prescribed way based on our heritage or our lineage, but we can live fresh in every moment. So I'll just read a little bit from the beginning of this book. The island then uh, is a metaphor for the state of Nibbana, the island. And so you'll hear in these words a little bit about what the metaphor means. And because my practice uh, depends on glasses, I'm going to take a moment and put my glasses on here. It is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified. Peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, nibbana, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. So those are from the Pali Canon. So, a state accessible to us all, even though it is the highest state. And isn't that an interesting thought, that every one of us has access to the very height of mystical connection with life that has been achieved by famous religious and mystical practitioners for millennia. So in our very lives, we don't need anything other than that. We don't uh, particularly need 40 days or 40 years or however much in the desert. Uh, we don't need to eat certain things or we don't need to wear certain things, have the trappings. We don't need to be associated with certain buildings. But it's all accessible just through our lives, just as our lives are, as we awaken to them. One of the things about this building here, which I used to love so much, and I actually I miss right now, is... On that wall up there where you can see the gray hessian or whatever it is, there used to be a word inscribed in beautiful calligraphy 
Does anybody remember that word that was inscribed? Ahipasiko. Ahipasiko. And there's a story to the word. Uh, This building was formerly a Christian church, and part of making it ours, um, part of a tradition that we appreciate as being not idolatrous and not, uh, you know, dedicated to certain forms and so forth. Gill wanted to have Ahipasiko inscribed up there so that when someone sat on the Dharma seat here as a teacher, that they would look up and see that word and it would remind them of Ahipasiko, a word in the Pali which refers to uh, try it, see if it works. It's a tradition of the Buddhist teachings, particularly the Theravadan teachings of 2,500 years, that if someone presents to you the Dharma or presents to you a Dharma, particular teachings or wisdoms, that you should not cling to this in any way, but you should be open and aware and find, does this particular teaching or dharma help me be more free in my life? And so that's what Ahipasiko refers to. And Gil wanted to make sure that whoever was up here had that in their mind, that what was being said was one person's attempt to sculpt out a piece of wisdom and offer it to others, but it should be offered in the spirit of give it a try. See if it works. If it works, adopt it, bring it into your practice, pass it on. If it doesn't work, lightly let it go. So that's the spirit that I offer my thoughts about Nibbana. I'm going to read one more thing, and then I'd like to ask for a little response from you guys. This is from our book, Passing It On, the Insight Meditation Center, Artists, Writers. And this is from a particular piece by a guy named John Ruark. He's a psychiatrist, has an office in Menlo Park. He's on the uh, faculty at Stanford Hospital Medical Center. And he's written a wonderful piece that really speaks to me. It's called Dharma and End-of-Life Caregiving by Dr. John Ruark. And he talks about, in his practice of psychiatry, how working with people at the end of their lives has been so rich it, it really is the time in the 2,500-year-old tradition when in the Buddha's life it all came together. The Parinibbana, when he was roughly 84 years old and quite weak, he was faced with the ending of a very rich life. And he was faced with people coming to him saying, oh, we can't do without you, you know, you must keep going, you must stay here. And uh, so he was faced with what could he leave. 
So John says about his practice, a final, more specific, difficult area that end-of-life caregivers constantly encounter is the loss of cherished relationship, both between our parents and our families and our own lives, the loss of the relationship. The Buddha said that nirvana was more difficult, if not impossible, to be achieved by householders as opposed to monastics, in part because the deep interdependence between family members and loved ones made it impossible to maintain equanimity in the face of losing beloved persons. Now, a cynic might wonder if he was post hoc justifying running off and leaving the wife and kids to wander around with his fellow seekers of wisdom. We've all heard that, right? What was the Buddha thinking? Leaving his wife, leaving his kids, going to teach. John says, but I actually think he had a good point. Interpersonal neurobiology shows that deep relationship creates big changes in the brains of both partners, in the brains of both partners, such that losing each other has devastating effects. The more deeply we love, the more intertwined our minds and brains become in relationship, and the greater the suffering that we sign on for when inevitably one of us leaves the other. The fact that humans still choose to love in spite of an intuitive awareness of this truth is one of our most admirable and courageous traits. So that really brings it clear that all that we love and all that we cherish, we will be separated from at some point whether it's through death or divorce or people moving away. And our response can be of clinging. It can be, oh, no. Or it can be, well, let's see what happens. Let's investigate. So Nibbana has these aspects of causing us to come really down to what is real, to what is actual and what is important in our lives. And that's what this vigiling practice that we're working toward, I I think that's the richness of it. When we vigil with someone who is at the end of their life, we're not only able to provide a crucible or a safe space for them to have their experience, but we're able to do that for ourselves so that we can have the compassion and the willingness, the openness, the safety to really encounter life just as it is, our life just as it is, our practice, and the end of that. There's an old teaching that says we don't know what we got until we don't have it anymore. <laughs> What's the, there's a, a song about it. Does anybody remember the name of the song? Don't miss your water until your well runs dry. Don't miss, what is it? You don't miss your water until the well, well runs dry. You don't miss your water till the well runs dry. <laughs> 
So before it runs dry, let's wake up and drink the water and enjoy it. So I thank you very much for your attention, and I encourage you all to remember that after the ecstasy, there's the laundry. And it's all part of the practice of the unfolding of everyday nibbana.